Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you know, it's, it's nice to see some room in the auditorium, and that was the point of the overflow, and that's a blessing. It is good to see it all working the way that it should. Those in the overflow, hello, I'm glad that you're there. We're going to have a good time today. We are looking at our study on why believe, why believe. And we're answering four questions. Last week we looked at, at does, does truth exist? Is truth knowable? Today we're going to look at the subject, does God exist? Next week, are miracles possible? And then the following week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the subject, is the New Testament reliable? And this morning, what I want to do is, there are basically three parts to my sermon. At the beginning of the, of the message, I'm gonna, I want to speak to your spirit. We're going to look at the scriptures, and the Bible says that, that, that God's spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. So uh, I want to speak to you from the Word of God about who God is. And then I'm going to speak to your mind. I want to look at some arguments, logical arguments for the existence of God. And then I want to talk at the end about, to your heart, and about the, just, just the, the concept of a personal relationship with this God who is. Now, the basic premise, when I would do a study at, uh, say, Oklahoma State or Purdue, we'd get together in a room, and I would explain what Christianity is, and I would write on the board that the, that the foundational assumption of Christianity is this. God is. Is that right? The Bible assumes God. The Bible does not try to prove God. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. God. That is the assumption of Christianity. Now, we understand that an atheist is a person who does not believe that. Is that right? An atheist is a person who does not believe that. But what I want to begin with is just a, a brief overview of what the Bible says about God. So look with me at that 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. The Bible says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's read that out loud together. You ready? Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us as we study your word this morning, as we think about you. Lord, help us to have your mind on this subject. And Lord, there might be someone in this room who doesn't believe in you. Lord, I pray through your word that you will knock on their heart's door and that they'll open it to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I want to explain, I want to describe, is, is how the Bible describes God. And the first is that He is eternal. eternal. Now, by eternal, we don't mean that He has a beginning and then goes on until eternity. That is that He has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. Do you see what it says in verse 17 again? Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Look with me at Psalms 90, the 90th Psalm. And if you don't have a Bible with you, look at the pew or look under the, the we don't have pews anymore. But look at the chair in front of you. Underneath the chair, there should be a Bible available for you or make sure that you're able to look on with somebody. But look at Psalm 90, look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Isn't that a great verse? 
That is our eternal God. The Bible describes God as eternal. And I'm going to try not to distract myself very often during this message because this subject, you could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But I want to begin with just this understanding. When you look at the, at, at the thoughts that are given in the Bible about God, these things were written sometimes a thousand years, two thousand years before the great philosophers. The Bible tells us that all the world came to see the wisdom of Solomon. That's people from Africa and people from all over Europe. They, these, these great thinkers came to see Solomon. And the Bible tells us that God gave Solomon the ability to be the wisest man that ever lived. And remember, the word philosophy means that's a lover of wisdom. So anything that is true from the great philosophers, I believe, could be traced back to the wisdom that God gave Solomon. Anything they found that's true can only be God's truth. And we may demonstrate that today. Other, If I don't have time, then maybe in another service. But the, the, this is the thing that is so interesting. When you look at the great thinkers of our time, the ideas that are expressed in the Scriptures are greater than any of the thoughts that are expressed by a modern philosopher. This concept of an eternal God, eternal in the past, eternal in the future, and actually living outside of time, that is beyond the capacity of the human mind to consider. We can't comprehend eternity. Now, for some of the teenagers, eternity is a sermon like this. Is it ever going to be over? I'm hungry. But it really is hard for us to grasp the concept of eternity. Those are the great thoughts that are found in the Scriptures. And it's so much different from any of the other ancient literature. The level that the Bible is written on, as far as deep thoughts, not Stuart Smalley's deep thoughts, this is something different. As far as deep thoughts, it's so much different than any of the other ancient literature. That's the God of the Bible. Modern atheists try to call us infantile. That's a word that, that Richard Dawkins likes to use. We are infantile. Well, I can tell you this, that the comprehension of eternity past and eternity future is not infantile. It's the deepest thing that a person can consider. Then, um, so the, the passage here, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. So the Bible describes God as eternal. The Bible also describes God as all-powerful. Go to Colossians chapter 1. All-powerful. God is all-powerful. So look at Colossians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about this. Often the God that is described in, say, the book, The God Delusion, is not the God of the Bible. It's the God of Dawkins' own creation. So what I'm trying to establish is, before we demonstrate the existence of God, I want us to understand the God who we believe exists. The God that is described by the atheist, no one believes in. I don't believe in the God that the atheist describes. I am with him. I am an atheist on that God. We are going to establish the God that we do 
believe in as described in the Scriptures. Look at verse 17, Colossians 1, verse 17. And He is before all things, and look at this, and by Him all things consist. Not only did He create them, but He holds them together. That's how powerful our God is. By Him all things consist. He is eternal and He's all-powerful. Not only that, He is infinite in His understanding. He's infinite in His understanding. This is a great verse. Go with me to Psalm 147. I love this verse. Psalm 147. Look at verse 5. You know, let's just start reading in verse 1. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. For it is pleasant, and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart. He bindeth up their wounds. Look at this. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. I wonder if the people that sell stars, you can buy a star and have it named after you. I wonder if they get that name from God. I don't think so. It's interesting. Um, I'll, I'll point this out a little bit later. But there was an astronomer who showed a, a picture. And in this picture, there were, I can't remember the number, so many billion stars. And if you counted them, if you started now and counted them one per second, imagine, you start now and you start counting these stars one per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count the stars in that one picture. Well, the Bible says that God can number all of them and He can call them by name. Alpha Centauri. What, 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 isn't that where they were trying to go in uh, Lost in Space, Alpha Centauri? And that where they, Danger, Will Robinson. Is, was it Alpha Centauri? You're, how many of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about? Don't have any idea. That's all right. I'm old. But let's read on. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Now look at this verse, verse 5. You've got to mark this verse. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Have you ever felt like no one understands you? God's understanding is infinite. Infinite understanding. That's the way that the God of the Bible is described. He's perfect and holy like none other. Perfect and holy like none other. Go to Exodus chapter 15. And look at verse 11. Who is, like, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? See the small g's. Those are the gods that people will uphold. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like thee? It's a rhetorical question. None. No one can be like the God of the Bible. He's perfectly holy like none other. Look at Psalm 86. Psalm 86. This list of scriptures and, and attributes of God came from Ken Ham. And I, I mentioned in the Sunday school class that I had Googled Ken Ham and the Big Bang. And so he, what he, he is describing the greatest argument for God. And he get, begins by describing the God of the Bible. And I like this list so much that I wanted to share it with you. Isn't this a great way to begin a discussion about the existence of God? 
Let's, let's describe the God that we're talking about. He's not the capricious God of Islam. Who, you say, if you want to find out something from Islam, are you going to go to heaven? Inshallah, if God wills it. If God wills it. That's not where we are. We know who God is. He has been described. He has communicated to us. We have hope for the future. We know what He demands of us. We know how to get from Him what He has offered. We know how to have access to Him. All of that information is communicated. The God that is described by others who hate Him is not the God that we worship. So we're beginning with a description of the God of the Bible. So look at Psalm 86, and let's start reading in verse 8. Among the gods there is none like thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God. What's that next word? Alone. There's only one true and holy God. It's not the God of the atheist. It's the God of the Bible. Then, he is incapable of lying. Look at Titus. Titus. Chapter 1, look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, that, what does it say? Cannot lie, promised before the world began. Isn't that good? Before the world began, God promised us eternal life. But and He can't lie. That's wonderful. That's where we have hope. Then, not only is He the only God, and He is incapable of lying, but He's the creator of the whole universe. We know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3. Let's look at John 1.3. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. I quote it often, but let's look at it together. John 1, let's start reading in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of the universe. Go back to the book of Titus. Not only is He the creator, but He is also the Savior. Are you glad He's your Savior today? Titus. Chapter 2, and look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about something. I love it the way that the Bible describes it. The great God and our Savior. He's the only great God. That's it. But if you know Him, He's your Savior. That's wonderful. That's the personal God that we worship. We don't worship the deistic God who set the world in motion and then stepped back and has no concern about His creation. We have not only a transcendent God, one that is above all and outside of all, but we have a God that is imminent, who came near. The one who's called Emmanuel, God with us. That's the God that we worship. That's the God of the Bible. So let's describe this God. This is the God that we are looking for in this message today. He is the God who is perfect. Perfect. Now, we understand from the Bible that when we say perfect, that means complete. Complete. God is the only, the God of the Bible is the only being that is perfect. What does that mean? That means 
that He is the only entity in existence, the reason for whose existence is in Himself. Now think about that. Let me say it again. Is everybody awake? I want you to think about this. God is the only entity in existence, the reason for whose existence is in Himself. All other quantities or entities exist by virtue of something else. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. But this is the way the Bible describes Him. Do you remember when Moses, he's out in the wilderness, and God reveals Himself in a burning bush. Moses is walking along, and he sees this bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And all of a sudden, God speaks to him out of this bush. Now, would that freak you out? Seriously. You know, that was before Bo's outdoor speakers. You know, bushes didn't speak then. And so he sees this bush. And I love the first question that Moses asks. Who am I that you would speak to me? That's interesting, isn't it? That's what happens when you first witness greatness. You see your own lack of greatness. And then he says, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And he said, I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. That is God's state of constant being. He just exists. He is no beginning, no ending, and he is the only entity that is responsible for his own existence. He is complete. He is absolutely perfect, uncaused, infinite, undependent. That's the God that we worship. So let's dive in. And so we've looked spiritually at who God is. What is the God? The God that we claim is the God of the Bible. We've looked at how he is described. Now I want to talk to your mind a little bit, and I want us to think about just a couple of ideas. Number one, logical consistency. We believe in God because of His logical consistency as opposed to atheistic inconsistency. Logical consistency versus atheistic inconsistency. So let's, let's talk about this. If there is no God, so as Richard Dawkins or other atheists would say, if there truly is no God... Is the world explainable? For example, in the absence of God, how can we define moral law? In the absence of God, how can we define moral law? Think about the problem of evil. Um, I have an interaction between Ravi Zacharias. He's a Christian apologist, a Christian uh, defender of the faith. And he was in a question and answer with a college student. And this college student challenged Ravi on the concept of evil. If there is a God, why is there evil in the world? So listen to the conversation between Ravi and this young man. Here's what Ravi said. When you say there is such a thing as evil, then you are saying, then you are also saying there is such a thing as good. How many of you that makes sense to you? If you're saying there's such a thing of evil as evil, then you're saying there's such a thing as good. When you say there is such a thing as good, aren't you saying there is such a thing as a moral law on which you distinguish between good and evil. So good and evil are moral terms. Do you all accept that? Is that fair? And this is the argument that Ravi was making with this younger man. He said, when you say there is such a thing as good, aren't you saying there is such a thing as a moral law on which you distinguish between good and evil? 
When you say there is a moral law, you must admit that there is a moral law giver. So if you have a law, here's what you say. Someone will say, this is a law. And when you were a little child, what would you say? Who says? Who says? That, that is a basic understanding. Do you remember when your sister was taking care of you when you were little? And she said, you need to go inside. And you say, who says? You're not the boss of me. Remember? Mom said. Dad said. Right? If it's your bigger brother, he said, because I said so, and he grabs you by the ear and drags you into the house, right? <laughs> if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. Is that fair? And we can actually develop that logically. I'm not going to take the time to do that. And I know you're very thankful. So he said this, Ravi said this to the young man, when you say there's a moral law, you must admit a moral law giver. If there's no moral law giver, there is no moral law. And so that moral law giver is God. If there's no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. What then are you asking? And actually the way the conversation went, was Ravi said to him, if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. And here's what the young man said. What then am I asking? It was hilarious. Everybody, the whole crowd just laughs. And Ravi said, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> if you don't have a God, how can you have good? If you don't have a moral law, you can't have good and you can't have evil. All you have is subjectivism. I think this is good. You think that's evil. How are we going to decide who's right? Whoever's stronger. What if it's Hitler that's stronger? What if it's Stalin that's stronger? Who's to say they're wrong? Think about World War II. World War II, when you think about wars and the interaction that people have had, how many of you believe Hitler was bad? Anybody here? Right? Some of you didn't raise your hand. I'm really questioning whether or not you have a moral compass. Or maybe, again, you just don't vote. How many of you believe Hitler was bad? Right? How many of you believe Stalin was bad? Stalin was our ally. After the war, he killed 20 million people. We enslaved half of Europe through the Treaty of Yalta. So what did we say? Stalin's okay. He's our partner. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Was that morally wrong? And see, here's the problem. Too many Americans who are Christians, they submit their Christianity to their Americanism. It was wrong for us to give half of Europe to Stalin. Why? Because Stalin's evil. Stalin didn't think he was evil. If you're going to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. Ask Ukraine. You think five million people he starved to death in Ukraine? Horrible. Horrible. That's evil. How many of you believe that starving five million people to death is evil? How many do you believe that that's evil? Well, then there must be good. What is good? We can't determine those things by societal norms. Half the world agreed with Stalin. They're called communists. We could talk about Bernie Sanders for a little while, but we'll move on. So, if there is no God, the atheist has no answer for morality. And believe me, they try. 
Richard Dawkins said this, we have to deny the reality of evil if our argument is to stand. It's very interesting. Alan Dershowitz, he said this, I don't know if there's such a thing as good, but I know there's such a thing as evil. Well, if you don't know whether there's good or not, how do you know what evil is? How many of you recognize that that's nonsense? Seriously, that's nonsense. You have to be taught how to think that dumbly. It's really interesting. So what do we see? Logical inconsistency. We do recognize that evil exists. Would you all agree with that? I could describe it for you, but I think that we recognize it. So, first of all, we said that in the absence of God, how can we define a moral law? Secondly, in the absence of God, how can life have meaning? And I've read this before, but I want you to think about it. This is Dawkins who says there's no evil. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we, precisely the properties we would expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's the world that Dawkins lives in. That is not the world of reality. How many of you believe in justice? You believe in justice, right? So somebody breaks into your house and steals something, you call the police. Why? Because what they did was wrong. That's your personal and private property, and they violated the law. Now, it's interesting that even an atheist would do that. I don't know if I told you this story or not. Um, Imagine that you have $1,000 and you put it in your bedside table. And the next day, you get another $1,000 and you put it in your bedside table. The next day, another $1,000, you put it in your bedside table. Then on the fourth day, you put another $1,000 in your bedside table. You come home the next day and you look in the drawer expecting to find $4,000. Is that fair? Yeah? But it's not there. Does the atheist believe that the laws of arithmetic were violated? Or the laws of the state were violated? The laws of the state. Where did those laws come from? Is that a natural law in the sense of gravity? No. That is, it, that is the society saying, based on God's law, that that property belongs to the individual and it was taken unlawfully by someone that we would call a thief. Well, that's hurtful. What are you doing? You're passing a judgment based on a biblical concept of justice. In Dawkins' way of thinking, you can't judge that person because they're just dancing to their DNA. By what authority would you judge that person for stealing when their DNA required them to do it? Students, try this at school. Look on the paper of the person next to you during the test. And when your teacher catches you and says you are cheating, just tell them you're dancing to your DNA. You had no choice but to do that. How do you think that's going to go? 
whether that person's an evolutionist or not, you're failing that test. Why? Because they have a moral law. Where does that moral law come from? The moral law giver. So, let's go back to this concept of in the absence of God, how can life have meaning? According to Dawkins, it does not have meaning. No purpose, no choice, just blind determinism. And if this is true, there can be no justice. Then thirdly, in the absence of God, there can be no hope. In the absence of God, there can be no hope. Uh, I, I always remember when I was in Ghana, West Africa, we're staying in this horrible place. And there was a, a, a lady who, was, um, who worked there. She'd help us with our breakfast and things. And I had to take most of my food with me because the food that's there you can't really eat. The average life expectancy, I think, is 30 years. All right? And so this, this young lady is helping us. And there was this, believe it or not, they had a microwave this old microwave, and I had brought beefaroni, this little styrofoam thing of beefaroni. And so if you've been wondering how I have this amazing physique, now you know. So I have this beefaroni, <laughs> and honestly, I don't like it, but it beats dying. So I'm eating that rather than something else that may have been offered to me. So I take the top off of it, and this lady comes in, and she looks at it, and she said, what is that? And I said, well, it's, it's noodles, it's macaroni. Do you know what that is? She said, yes. I said, and it's beef and some tomato sauce. And she said, that is why your skin is so beautiful. Now, let me tell you something. No one has ever called this skin beautiful. Okay? I worked in a water tower place in Chicago and there was this, this gay guy that I worked with. Everybody was, except there was two of us that weren't, about 18 people that were. And this guy walked up to me and he said, you're just looking a little pasty. You need some Indian earth. You need some color. <laughs> That's the story of my life. So when, when, this, when this lady said to me, how many of you remember Indian earth? Remember that? It's a long time ago, like 1983. Um, I think I digress. But she said to me, that, that's why your skin is so beautiful, because you have good food like that to eat. She said, we pray and we pray and we pray that we can have wisdom like the Americans so we can have good food to eat like that. What was her hope? Her hope was beefaroni. That's, would you all agree that's a different life than what we live? you know what the sad thing is? Except for some amazing outside intervention, her life will never get better than that, living in that society. Because they have a governmental structure that will not allow progress. It's a, it's a horribly sad thing. But if there is justice, if there is hope in an afterlife, that can only come from God. That's the only place it can come from. We have meaning. We have hope. We have purpose that all comes from God. In the atheistic system, none of that exists. You cannot have it. All you can do is live the best life that you can now because you're going to take an eternal dirt nap. That's all that there is. Boy, that's hopeful, isn't it? There's no such thing as true hope in the atheistic system. Just a meaningless compilation of atoms into a body 
with no purpose. So, what have we looked at? First of all, logical consistency. Secondly, I want you to think about empirical adequacy. What are we talking about there? That when you look at the world that exists, it cannot be explained apart from the God who is. Let me explain it. It is the nature and existence of the physical reality that we see. A God who is outside of time, timeless, outside of time, immaterial, not a physical quantity, who created the world. That's the only way, that's the only thing that can explain the reality that we see. Think about this. No matter how you break down physical reality, it will always owe its existence to something else. All right? So if you have Ravi Zacharias use the example of an apple, I saw Sproul use the example of a piece of chalk, whatever it is, Think about it. Let's use that apple illustration. You can take the apple and you can dissect it. You can look at it under a microscope. You can boil it down and look at its properties. Whatever it is, it cannot explain its own existence. Where does an apple come from? A a tree. A tree. Where does the tree come from? Where does the seed come from? Huh? Uh, Another tree? Where did that tree come from? You see, uh, unless you have an eternal tree, you can't have an apple unless it was created. You see, it owes its existence to something else. (laughs) This is so funny. It's logically absurd for something to create itself, right? Because it would have have to have existed before it created itself. So if something doesn't exist... But, but how, many of you, how many of you are thinking of something that doesn't exist right now? It's interesting, isn't it? If something doesn't exist, it cannot create itself because it would have had to exist in order to create itself. It's a logical absurdity. So now here you have two possibilities. You have two possibilities. You have something that was created or something that has always existed. Those are your only two possibilities. Something is created or something has always existed. So think about it. Every physical entity must come from some pre-existent form. Is that fair? So this chair, it didn't always exist as a chair. At one time, it was just some fabric and some metal that had to be put together. Where did that fabric and metal come from? Something else that had to be put together in order for that to exist. It didn't come from nothing. So every physical entity must come from some pre-existent form. These pre-existent forms cannot be infinite. Now think about this. So think of my apple and my tree. That can't be eternal. It, It can't come from an infinite process because that would be infinite in the past. If it's infinite in the past, that means it would never come to exist today. Think of setting up your dominoes. All right? So this last domino has to fall. If there are an infinite number of dominoes in the past that have to fall to get here, this one can never fall because it would never make it here. Why? Because it's infinite in the past. Does that make sense? How many of your head hurts a little bit? Just a little. So that means that logically everything had to start somewhere in order to get here. Is that fair? 
So remember, the existence of anything physical must be explained by one self-existent cause which is not physical. All physical substances have to have a beginning. That means that first cause can't be physical. This is, this is good. C.S. Lewis said this, An egg which came from no bird is no more natural than a bird which has existed from eternity. Let me say that again. An egg which came from... So you have, a, you have an egg that didn't come from a bird. Right? Well, that would have to be supernatural. And that would be no less supernatural than a bird that always existed. It can't, you just can't have that. It's logically absurd. We do not have one example of a physical entity that explains its own existence. So what are we talking about? So you have to have a God, something, outside of the physical reality to set that physical reality in motion because you can't, you can't have it eternal. If it was eternal, infinite in the past, it would never get to today. And it certainly can't be self-created. Logically absurd. That means there has to be an entity outside of time and outside of physical reality that could set it in motion. And, of course, that is our definition of God. And not only is he that, but he is also personal, and we could get into that. So then there's another argument, and let me move along quickly because I know this is probably mind-numbing. But this is the argument to design. We're looking at reality, the world that we look at, the argument to design, not the argument from design. Let me give you an example. What is the argument from design? Um, think of the vastness of the universe. I mentioned this downstairs. A picture of outer space. There's 100 billion stars. If you started counting now and counted one per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count those stars. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. John Polkinghorne gave... So, so how, how, where did those stars come from? How, how, how do they hang in space? Where did that come from? There's a design to it. John Polkinghorne from Queens College, Cambridge. He was explaining how all the, con the contingencies in the early picoseconds of the universe require design. What's a picosecond? It's not you know, something you dip your salsa in. It's, what is a picosecond? It is the amount of time that it would take for an object moving at the speed of light to cross the width of a hair. So an object traveling at the speed of light, what's that, 186,000 miles per second? Is that, is that right? Is it, am I close? That's, that it, imagine an object traveling that fast. How long would it take for that object to cover the distance of a human hair? That's a picosecond. So he is talking about the early picoseconds of the universe when it began. He said the expansion-contraction ratio... So if it expands too fast, it would never happen. If it expands too slowly, we couldn't exist. So that expansion-contraction ratio had to be so small that we're talking about probabilities and chance that imagine you're taking aim at a one-inch object at the other end of the universe. So you might say, where is the other end of the universe? It reminds me of the two blondes. There's a blonde that's in a boat on the lake, and she sees a blonde in the boat on the other side of the lake. And she yells to the other blonde. She says, hey, how do I get to the other side of the lake? Blonde scratches her head and she said, you are on the other side of the lake. So what's the other side of the universe? It's the other side of from wherever you are, okay? 
So imagine the other end of the universe. You've got something one inch square that you're taking aim at. And the other side of the universe is 20 billion light years away. 20 billion light years. And you take aim at that and you hit it dead on. That's the chance of the expansion-contraction ratio of the universe being exactly what it needed to be in the first picoseconds of its existence. How in the world could that just happen? So what is that? That's the argument from design. That, that somehow this happened, it had to be designed, blind chance cannot explain it. What is the argument to design? What is it? Well, the argument to design is this. Evolution cannot explain the Big Bang. Is that fair? Evolution can't explain. The, the Big Bang didn't evolve. If the, <laughs> when you ask people, uh, I mentioned this in Sunday school, so the Big Bang, what is the Big Bang? What they would describe to you, and this is in my layman's terms, uh, that it's a singularity. That everything that exists is compressed into one point. All right? And it went bang. That's the Big Bang. So here's the question. What caused it? Evolution couldn't cause it because according to the evolutionist, evolution is based on the laws of physics. The experts, the physicists would also say that at the point of the Big Bang, that is the point where the laws of physics break down. So it's something outside the natural laws that caused that Big Bang. Now, I'm not saying the Big Bang happened. I'm saying that's what they would say happened. What caused it? So imagine this is 2 o'clock in the morning. You're at your house, and there's a little bang. What are you going to try to find out? What caused it? Well, if we want to find out about the little bang, we really ought to find out about the Big Bang. What caused it? It had to be something outside of itself that caused it. So what are we saying? That that has to lead to design. We're not arguing from design. When you look at the universe as the scientists would, there has to be something that caused it. That is the argument to design. Um, so th this is the concept. There is a configuration and coalescing of intelligent quantities that predispose the resultant entity that came into being. So let's give them the Big Bang. Let's say that it happened. All right? How is it that everything exploded into its current order? When you think of an explosion, do you think of something orderly? Now, you might be saying, yes, look at the way they build roads. They can set a charge that takes out just the amount of rock that they want to remove. The demolition of a building. Isn't it cool when they drop a big building straight down, right? Is that a natural occurring event or does it require some intelligence? I love it that they're going to create life in the lab. Right? And so you've got a bunch of PhDs who spent their lives gaining intelligence. And they put all of these things together, amino acids, they, they uh, supply a certain amount of water and a certain amount of energy, electricity, whatever it takes to try and produce life. And when they do that, they say, see, 
It could happen with no intelligence. Do you see the logical absurdity of the position? Do you recognize, would you all, would you all agree? That's logically absurd. You spend all this time accumulating information and intelligence. You get raw materials. You combine them. You apply intelligence and energy. And that proves that it could all happen without intelligence. I'm not intelligent enough to understand that. It makes no sense. There is a configuration and coalescing of intelligent quantities that predispose the resultant entity that came into being. So, spoke to your spirit. Tried to speak to your mind. Now let me talk to your heart a little bit. So we have logical, logical consistency. Empirical adequacy. God explains all of that. Now let me just do a little parenthesis here. What we're accused of is believing the God of the gaps. So we don't know how it happened, so it must have been God. No, 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 no. The evidence demands that a God did this. The evidence requires it's not the God of the gaps. We are looking at the evidence and we're saying, this is the God that the Bible describes before any of your ideas of logic, consistency, or empiricism were invented, and God fits into every bit of that. Not only that, but those laws of logic and empiricism require the God that's described in the Bible. They are denying reality. So we've looked at logical consistency, empirical adequacy, but now what about experiential relevance? This God, He entered His creation. He entered his creation. We can know him. Secondly, God accurately describes the human condition. When someone like Dawkins or Hitchens, Hitchens who's, who's dead now, when they would, would attack Christianity based on the behavior of Christians, what we would say is absolutely true. People have done horrible things in the name of Christ. Would you all agree with that? But the Bible says they would. Jesus told the apostles, they're going to kill you thinking they're doing the work of God. The Bible specifically and in detail describes the human condition, the sin, the unjustness, the selfishness. But then the person of Jesus Christ reveals God. The person of Jesus Christ. When you look at the world, the things that you have to understand are evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. Evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. I think we all agree that they exist in the world. Evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. And these four things, these four concepts... Let me ask you a question. If everything is natural, for the naturalist, the person who believes there's no such thing as supernatural, how much does justice weigh? What are the physical dimensions of love? How do you quantify evil? Apparently, there is something outside of our natural elements. These are concepts that are not only the concept of the flying spaghetti monster, but they are concepts that define reality or describe reality. So if you look at evil and justice, love and forgiveness, these four converged in the cross of Jesus Christ. Evil was seen for what it was because perfect love and perfect righteousness was treated so horribly. Justice was meted out by a righteous and holy God where the judgment of the world was passed on Jesus Christ for you and for me. 
love was seen. Because here, Jesus Christ on the cross, dying a horrible death, and he sees his mother. He says, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It is in his darkest time, he's caring about the needs of his mother. What an amazing Savior we have. And then we see forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus looks at the thief, and he says, This day, you'll be with me in paradise. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see all of these concepts, evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. And so what do we find out? We're evil. I'm a sinner. I'm evil. I deserve justice. But God loved me so much that by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven. You see, in the, cross of, in the cross of Christ, or at the cross of Christ, we see all of these concepts that everyone knows innately that they are true. And this same Jesus wants to wipe your slate clean. So who is this God that we worship? He's eternal. I can trust His perspective. He's loving. I can trust His purpose. He's just. I can trust His judgment. And He's unchangeable. I can trust His Word. That is the God that we worship. Thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to talk about you.